marijuana, pot, grass, shake, bud, ganja, chronic, cannabis. Cannabis. Whatever term you use, less than 10 years ago, it was a product that was trafficked in the shadows. Hey, buddy. Hey, hey buddy. Hey, buddy. And today, in Oregon and many other states in the U.S., you get a receipt and a bag with your purchase. Thank you. Come again. I'm Travis Box, and I am fascinated by the complexities of what seems like a voter-approved gold rush happening in real time. Will we cultivate Oregon's greatest cash crop ever? Or will this great experiment and legalization go up in smoke? (coughs) Each episode, I'll sit down one-on-one with the major players in the Oregon cannabis industry, the activists, the medical professionals, the legislators, the economists, the regulators, and the lobbyists. How did Oregon get to this place in history? And where does this budding billion-dollar industry go from here? You see what I did there? You're listening to Mainstream Weedia on the Coin Podcast Network. It's not news that Oregon has had a very long history with cannabis. Long before the passages of adult use and medicinal use, Oregon has been known for the quality and quantity of the product it grows. Much of that cannabis has been grown generationally in Southern Oregon. This episode, we speak with Mason Walker, the CEO and one of the co-owners of East Fork Cultivars, located in Josephine County. We talk about how it was founded, the importance of being a good neighbor and steward of the land, and how the community has been impacted by an explosion of illicit cartel-driven grow operations. You're listening to Mainstream Media. Hi, this is Jeff Giannola from Coin6 News, and I'd like to invite you to watch Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW. It's our award-winning newscast one hour earlier at 10 o'clock. A full hour of the stories that are important to you and your family from the news team that's watching out for you. Plus, Portland's most accurate forecast certified by weather rate from Chief Meteorologist Natasha Stenbach. See why more people are switching to Coin 6 News at 10 on Portland CW. Watching out for you. Welcome back to Mainstream Media. Mason, to get started, what led you to the cannabis industry? So I was attracted first to the cannabis industry when I was a journalist uh, back in 2014 and Oregon voters decided to uh, vote through a ballot measure to end prohibition on cannabis in the state. It was very exciting to cover as a journalist at the time and uh, the next, you know, year and a half to two years, I had the privilege of being able to write about the rulemaking process and some of the business activity really got a, a slightly inside look at how a sausage was being made. And I found it fascinating at that time, just fascinating how the rules were being written, where they were drawing boundaries. And so I got a professional interest from being a journalist writing and, and, and watching the industry unfold in Oregon. And then I have a personal interest. I have a personal affinity for the plant. When I was a, a young teenager, when I was 13, I broke my neck. I broke my cervical spine through a fairly traumatic accident and you know, was paralyzed for a time, had surgery, and have dealt with chronic pain from that incident ever since. In my teenage years, I was heavily reliant upon opioids to manage that pain. And as we all know, opioids uh, have very dark depth to them 
for me, you know, they had social costs. You know, I, I, I just was not myself when I was on opioids managing my pain. And I was looking for something else. And when I was 18, discovered cannabis. And, you know, it certainly was not a one-to-one replacement for me personally to manage pain. It's never a perfect treatment for myself, but I just grew this deep personal affinity with the plant because it was my off-ramp, my my exit drug, if you will, from opioids. And all throughout my 20s, you know, as I built my career as a journalist, I used cannabis and, you know, really relied on it. So when the cannabis industry sort of blossomed in Oregon in 2016, 2017, I was ready to try something new after a journalism career. And both professionally and personally, I was very interested and drawn towards the cannabis industry. And that's how I found my way in. Tell me about East Fork Cultivars and your introduction to the brothers. So East Fork Cultivars, were a family-owned cannabis company based in Oregon. We started back, uh, really the East Fork story goes back all the way to about 2007 or so, when uh, Aaron Howard started growing medical cannabis in Oregon's medical cannabis program for his late older brother, Wesley, as a caregiver. Wesley suffered from a range of neurological disorders, including neurofibromatosis, which causes tumor growth throughout the body and a lot of pain, as well as epilepsy, which he later uh, formed and you know would get seizures and auras. Cannabis was a uniquely positioned therapy for both the pain from his neurofibromatosis and the seizures from his epilepsy. So, his brother, Aaron Howard, started growing cannabis medically. Their third brother, Nathan, was sort of involved and also had a medical card as a caregiver there. And in 2013, I believe, or 14, you know, the brothers were still just had the little medical cannabis garden as caregivers. And the story of Charlotte Figgy, uh, this young girl in Colorado, started making the rounds. There, I believe a CNN did a story about this young girl who had been having about 100 seizures a day from her you know, seizure disorder and high CBD cannabis that was not intoxicating was just breakthrough medicine for her. And it's highly impactful on the brothers, on Nathan and Aaron, as caregivers for their own brother who dealt with similar symptoms. And so they started tracking down plants that were low in THC, the main intoxicant in cannabis, and high in CBD, this therapeutic compound that that could help manage seizures. And that's how the, the story of East Fork was born. You know, we were early participants in the adult use market. We, we received one of the first producer licenses to grow cannabis in the state back in 2016. And we today steward 33 acres of beautiful land in Southern Oregon's Illinois River Valley. And we grow uh, one acre of adult use cannabis for Oregon's dispensary market. And we grow about nine acres of floral hemp it's really rich in CBD that we supply to the broader hemp and CBD markets across the country and, and in some international markets. We're a pretty small company still. We're about 25 employees. We focus on being ingredient suppliers to other product maker brands that you can find in the grocery store or in a dispensary that make CBD-rich products. And we're a, a primary supplier in Oregon and in, and in several other areas. We also have a line of our own products and a small retail shop in Southeast Portland called Hemp Bar in the Foster Powell neighborhood. About a month and a half ago, I had a very lengthy conversation with Bo Whitney about hemp specifically. And you are still in that market where it sounds like the market really kind of crashed in Oregon and a lot of people got out. Is it your size 
Or is it your reputation? Or is it your quality? What keeps you in the CBD hemp market? Yeah, we, we've been lucky. I think it's all of the above. We're, you know, we're quite small and we have a niche carved out. We also have really deep partnerships. And so, you know, one thing that, you know, is important to acknowledge along with Bo's kind of wise macroeconomic analysis and of the gloom and doom of the industry, which is very true, is that demand, consumer demand for CBD-rich products has grown steadily for the last few years and continues to grow year over year. And so, you know, that, that CBD has to come from somewhere, that hemp has to come from somewhere. And we have been lucky to form some really strong partnerships with branded product makers. Uh, we're the, the primary supplier for Rogue's CBD Seltzer, which is a very popular hemp beverage. Uh, we also work with Brew Doctor Kombucha on their uh, hemp CBD kombucha line. We also work with a handful of other, you know, sort of mainstream natural product companies that you'd find in the grocery store that are not cannabis companies. They're you know, sort of mainstream companies and we're their strategic supplier. It's been uh, an interesting journey. You know, the hemp side of our business has grown steadily year over year ever since we started it in 2018, but it's it's very challenging. There's, you know, sort of quickly compressing margins and there's a lot of pain in the market. A lot of our peer companies have gone out of business or are under a lot of duress. And, you know, we're in a similar boat where it's, it's very challenging for us to continue. Our main strategy for survival has been diversification. You know, we do a little bit of everything. We're an ingredient supplier. We have our own branded products. We breed varieties and sell seed to other farmers to grow our varieties of hemp. We have our small retail footprint. We do e-commerce. So, you know, we kind of have our tentacles everywhere. And so, if, if one area is not working, we really lean our energy into another, and that's, that's uh, sustained us so far. One of East Fork Cultivar's tenants is sustainability. And I have to think that it's kept you small and nimble. It's kept you environmentally friendly. It sounds like you really want to be partners with the community around you. And all of those things must contribute to your continued success. Yeah, certainly, Travis. I mean, sustainability means a lot of things, right? And to us, you know, environmental and social responsibility is, is core. It's baked into our company's founding values and continues to live on. You know, we practice regenerative agricultural methods. We were one of the first USDA organic certified hemp farms in the country. We received that certification back in 2018. You know, we pay living wages and provide benefits to our, our team, including our farm workers. We definitely take a lot of pride in being good stewards of the community and the environment and our land. Uh, but sustainability also means surviving as, a, as an organization and, and as a company. And we've been really lucky to have great support from a network of lenders, investors, you know, mentors, advisors. We are very community oriented and we it has taken a village to make eSport uh, sustainable in that way and uh, continues to take a village that way too. What have been the biggest regulatory challenges you've faced? Ooh, where, to, where to start? <laughs> <laughs> let's let's stick with what has stung the most and continues to sting. So I think philosophically, the thing that has stung the most and continues to sting the most with regulatory challenges is a persistent prohibition mindset. So we're still in the, the shadow of cannabis prohibition, which was, you know, decades and decades long in the U.S., right? And we're, we are still in the shadow of that. Even in Oregon, in Oregon, it's passe. We're like, yeah, cannabis is normal. You know, you go to a party and there's a chance that people have cannabis there. 
you can buy cannabis products in the grocery store and new seasons you walk in and there's all sorts of CBD products, you know, that's very normalized, but in many parts of the country, you know, people are still going to prison for very small, nonviolent cannabis possession. And there's still a fairly persistent prohibition mindset, even in Oregon amongst regulators, legislators, the general public, it's just in more subtle and nuanced ways. And one, I think, thornier issue we've run into is in our county and in our community in Southern Oregon, where we operate our farm, it's Josephine County, that's what the county we're in. And you know, I think there was a poll a while back, but something like 40% of working age adults are supported either directly or, or indirectly, but it's substantially by the cannabis trade in that county. It is a cannabis county. It's like, it's what that county does. It's how generations of people have made a, a living and fed their, you know, put food on the table for their families there, whether it's in the illicit markets or the more recent text markets. And unfortunately, there's been a persistent run of anti-cannabis action and ordinances and attempted regulations in our county, not just trying to regulate time, place, and manner and normal things to make a responsible industry, but to literally try to stop the cannabis trade in, in that county. And the worst issue we had was back in 2017, the county tried to ban a lot of cannabis farming in in the county on rural residential land, which that sounds reasonable, you know, commercial farming on residential land, maybe not a great match of use. However, it's baked into the county code for a hundred years that you could have commercial farming activity on rural residential land in that county. And so we, along with a group of other growers, took the county to court, went to the Land Use Board of Appeals. We won there. The county appealed. We went to the State Court of Appeals. We won there very easily. You know, that sort of thing has persisted. Now there's sort of persistent ordinances with fees that we have to undergo each year that the blueberry farm down the road from us and the vineyard down the road from us do not have to go through whatsoever. We're not treated like agriculture. We're treated like criminals to a degree. And that's, that's you know, persistent and frustrating. I am hopeful, though. I do think that time is really the thing that heals these these sort of mentalities and mindsets. And, and that prohibition mindset is, is, you know, it is in the rear view it, and, and it's it's slipping, but it's it's still there. Yeah. And I've talked to quite a few people about that persistent stigma, that prohibition mindset that you talk about. Is the stigma different in Southern Oregon than it would be up here in the Portland Metro or North Willamette Valley area? Is that prohibition mindset down there, is it political? Is it social? Is it a a new push to try and shut you down? Or has that element always been there? I think the element's always been there. I will say there are very real valid community concerns coming from the cannabis industry in Southern Oregon. Bad actors. You know, there are a lot of bad actors and there always have been. And, and, and those bad actors have gotten bolder and bigger of late. And so, you know, as community members ourselves, we are very concerned. I think the challenge, though, is when you have bad actors, some people will say, oh, this industry is bad because this bad actor is bad. And I think that's where a lot of the mindset, the current mindset comes from. You know, if, if one large cannabis grower, whether they're illicit or taxed, cuts down a bunch of trees in a waterway and uses synthetic fertilizer that run into the river and leave a bunch of garbage out and carry AR-15s around the, the perimeter and have loud dogs or leave lights on in their greenhouses that cause light pollution or have a lot of loud noise. You know, there's so many of these things that can happen in, in any activity, right? And right now, particularly last year, there was a lot of this prevalent sort of bad actor 
stuff happening. And, you know, this other part of the industry, the tax regulated established good actors that are the majority, but it is that loud minority of bad actors that I think has has led to some recent regulations and some recent challenges for the community. How has the regulated and taxed cannabis industry, in specifically Josephine County and maybe Jackson County, how have you come together to try to help address that? About every two or three weeks, I'll get the Oregon State Police press release about two or three illicit grow operations shut down in Josephine or Jackson County that are clearly cartel-driven. How have you, or do you have, a venue to try to separate yourself from that within the community down there? Yeah, we're, we're super committed to that as an organization. And we have been, you know, that experience I described back in 2017 when we were kind of fighting for our livelihood and had to, you know, take it to the State Board of Appeals to just to protect our right to, to have this farm. I think that really catalyzed our commitment to working with the community as closely as we can in a lot of different ways. You know, for instance, we're friends with our county commissioners. We're friends with the sheriff of our county. We're friends with our peer farms in Southern Oregon. You know, we're friends with community groups that are trying to do economic development or workers' rights groups that are trying to protect, you know, the rights of migrant laborers. We are really involved and in in touch with all these different groups and interests and try to be, we try to put forward a good face for the industry. We sit on rules advisory committees for the Oregon Department of Agriculture and the Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission specifically for this reason. We want to demonstrate that there is a pool, a bigger pool of good actors that want this industry to be respected and trusted and leaned on to help weed out the bad actors. You know, we're, we're, we want to be part of the solution. You know, those avenues are, they take work to, to, to find, right? Uh, but but we're, we're really well received there. And the sheriff and the county commissioners and the, you know, those community groups are really happy to have those allies in the industry, the good actors. They viewed us as an ally, which is which has been nice. And, and unfortunately, you know, the industry still gets demonized, broadly speaking. But if you get down on the micro level in those individual relationships, they're really healthy and strong. Back in January, during one of the special sessions, $30 million was allocated to try to fight these illicit grows. Do you believe that the community down there has the resources it needs, or is it still sort of outmanned and outgunned right now by the bad actors? <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that $30 million. I was just at a, a hearing Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission meeting where I was on a, an industry panel in Ashland a couple of weeks ago, and the question of that $30 million came up. And unfortunately, due to some arcane reasons, that money hasn't been touched yet. It was allocated and approved, and the sheriff's departments and other folks have not been able to spend a dime of it as of a few weeks ago. Yeah, so it's really unfortunate. Sort of a state of emergency was declared due to this sort of widespread illicit cultivation explosion in, in Southern Oregon last year and all the problems, the humanitarian problems, the environmental problems, the community problems, very real problems that were presented. And, and this money was allocated and it feels like a little bit too little too late because they weren't able to access the money that was allocated. Were you told when they can allocate that money or is there a timeline? It's supposed to be imminent. Yeah. And it sounds like you know, there's people working on freeing it up. But again, like it's above my pay grade. There were some arcane governmental process reasons that wasn't happening quickly. But unfortunately, it was a state of emergency that that, that was declared and, and money for that is supposed to move quickly, you know, because there's problems right now. I will say there was some heartening news that came out of that 
meeting that both the sheriffs of Josephine and Jackson County co-presented. They had a, a flyover video of several grow sites, very large illicit grow sites. They took, you know, aerial footage last year, 2021, these enormous, you know, grow sites that were clearly cutting down trees and all this stuff. And this year they were all largely abandoned. You know, it, it does seem that there was a sort of boom and now bust of this huge illicit organized pop-up, you know, cash grab in Southern Oregon that had real kind of awful impact on the community. And there's still a lasting impact there. There's garbage everywhere. You know, there were people that were hurt and killed last year. There were, you know, human rights abuses. There's, you know, all those things that the community needs to pick up now because the folks that set all that up just disappeared. But it is good. It's good to see that, you know, that some of that response has had some you know, some positive impact. So you don't feel like you're being ignored at this point, that there is some work being done to help address the problem. Very much so. Yeah. And, you know, I have I, I have mixed feelings about it, too, you know, because I'm very much in the camp that I think this plant, you know, should be it's, it's so less dangerous than several other things. It's a fairly harmless plant. And we if we continue to treat it like an illicit drug that's problematic, throwing more police resources at it, for instance, that's going in the wrong direction. But I have mixed feelings because at the same time, I'm all for good actors, you know, and if people are being jerks, they should not be allowed to be jerks and break the law and commit human rights abuses. It's less about the plant. It's more about those other crimes from my perspective that just have no place in our community. I would think that if we saw some sort of federal cannabis reform, that would also help the problem because these grows are supplying the illicit markets that don't have the type of industry that a lot of other states like Oregon currently have. That, that's right. You know, my hopeful narrative, and I'm an eternal optimist, is that this big cartel activity in Southern Oregon last year was sort of the last last gasp of the big organized illicit market trying to capture some value in, you know, states and cities that still don't have access to, you know, a medical or adult use regulated cannabis market. And those locales are shrinking. You know, legalization is is widespread now. Over 50% of the population has easy access to cannabis in the in the country. And so my hopeful narrative is that this was the sort of last cash grab and Southern Oregon was made target for that last cash grab. I mean, A, it's the breadbasket of cannabis. It's you know an easy place to grow great sun-grown cannabis, has a big workforce, has a, but also it's historically had very low interference with illicit cannabis, just much more at the garden scale, not at the large farm scale. And so you know, I feel like it was targeted intentionally as a quick money grab and it really sucked. I'm I'm hopeful and my hopeful narrative is that that was like a last last gasp, maybe before coming, sweeping normalization and legalization. As someone who both studied it as a journalist, but now actively participating in the industry, what has Oregon done well since the passage of both the medicinal, but specifically since Measure 91 passed? What have we done right? Well, I have an answer that is somewhat unpopular in the industry at this point, but it's been a very consistent answer of mine since I started working in this space. And I'm very committed to it, even though it's a bit painful. I think one of the main things that Oregon did right when shaping its adult use cannabis market was it made a very low barrier to entry, a very inexpensive licensing process, and unlimited licensure. Now, of course, that's changed quite a bit since the beginning, but it's still a very wide open competitive market. And the reason that I think that was a good choice and why I think Oregon did well to do that is in the future, you know, the world is flat, as they say, and we're going to have to compete across state lines, 
across country lines. And, you know, so many states have created these artificial economies where they have limited licensure and they have extreme rules and high barriers to entry. And it, it makes warped market conditions. And so when those walls start to come down, who knows exactly when that will happen, but it's starting to happen in, in small ways. It's my view that the operators that have been able to play in a more open market stand to be more sustainable. They're, they're going to be more ready to survive and thrive in a more open market because they have participated in a more open market. And so, again, that's a fairly unpopular opinion in the industry among my peers at this point. A lot of the industry trade groups were heavily in favor of the license moratorium, which did recently get extended in Oregon to allow the, the industry to sort of shore up in the existing operators to sort of recover from constant competition, race to the bottom, consolidation, these sort of cycles. But I'm taking the long view and, and I've stuck with it. I believe that Oregon was smart to make very low barrier to entry to enter this industry. And you know the, the, the reason that Oregon did that is we had so many legacy operators already. They wanted to incentivize those folks that had already been growing this plant and turning it into products and selling it for, you know in some cases, generations. They want to incentivize those folks to come over into the tax market. If Oregon had only issued 50 licenses and you had to pay a million dollars to get each license, then we'd still have a burgeoning illicit market within the state. I'm I'm convinced. And you know, there's definitely still an illicit market in Oregon, a very large one, but it's an export market. It's not a consumer market. Consumers in Oregon buy their their cannabis at the dispensary that they don't buy from their friend anymore. Actually, Mason, I've heard that answer from more people than you think. It's not that unpopular. It has its challenges, but it's a pretty consistent answer that I get from the people that I speak with. Now, to the flip side, what do you think is still challenging us within the state? So in the state, some big challenges. <laughs> We're getting a little bit of whiplash. Some a natural, What I think is a natural business cycle is for corporatization and commoditization. And, you know, I wouldn't say I'm a fan of those things, but I think that they're inevitable in, in capitalism. And, you know, as cannabis becomes bigger and bigger business, these cycles are inevitable. And they, they have happened in an interesting way in Oregon. You saw, you know, some market crashes where we had oversupply, which really impacted growers. And we've gone through cycles there. Then you've also seen, because we have so many retail licenses. We have over 700 stores in Oregon, which is just a lot of stores per capita. And you've seen challenges at the retail level with competition, just not having enough you know, market share to really compete well. You've seen a lot of consolidation and corporatization in Oregon. But the unique thing that's happened is other markets, other states have legalized as this has been happening in Oregon. And so corporations will enter, like a multi-state operator or a publicly traded Canadian corporation will enter the Oregon market. They'll buy up an existing business or a set of businesses. And as a portfolio, they'll invest some time and money, but then they'll be attracted to a shinier object in Michigan or in New Jersey or New York or in Massachusetts and really ignore their underperforming <laughs> Oregon market, which is underperforming because it's so competitive, because it's really open, free, high quality competitive market. And so we've seen this investment and then disinvestment cycle, kind of this whiplash happening. And I think it's been really bad and is a continued challenge for Oregon, where a lot of the owners of Oregon cannabis companies are not focused on their Oregon cannabis holdings and have disinvested in them. And I think that has negative impacts for employees and their quality of 
you know, their jobs and negative impacts on the overall cannabis community and, and industry in, in Oregon. So that's a challenge. I don't have a solution for it. <laughs> I think just time, but, uh, you know, it's, it's something that I see all the time, this sort of whiplash of licenses changing hands and getting getting ignored and, and people, people being the real cost of that, you know, people not being treated well. In retrospect, should there have been a residency clause to the licensing? You know, there was initially and it got removed and I was in favor of it getting removed for the same reason I was in favor of open licensing. It's, it's, you know, yeah, I'm more of an open market view kind of person. So do you feel we're close to federal reform? Booker, Schumer, Wyden dropped their reform bill recently. Blumenauer has dropped the Moore Act, what, three or four times now. Do you think we're close? I think it's two steps forward, seven steps back six steps forward, one step back, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. I will say these kind of things, they are symbolic. Like it, it, we're not going to get 60 senator votes on that bill period. We're not probably not even going to get unanimous votes from Democrats. So it's just not going to happen, but that's not the point, you know? And I think a lot of headlines are like the doomed bill. It's like, no, this is a symbol. The fact that the majority leader of the Senate co-sponsored a bill to legalize cannabis is itself an important thing. And this is how law is made. It's not as rational as we all would hope it would be. You have a good idea. It goes into a bill. You vote on its merits. It's in good faith. It's really, we know that's not how the Congress works. And so the symbol of it, I think, is important. I do view that, you know, that bill introduction today as an important symbolic step forward. Will it pass? No. <laughs> you know, certainly not. Be very, very surprised. And, you know, to answer your question, are, are we close to federal legalization or what does that look like? Maybe. I, if I were to look at my crystal ball, I see a couple scenarios. One, I see it dragging out for another decade and the federal government just being like, oh, it's up to states. States can do whatever they want, you know, and, and that's kind of where we're at right now. And so I see that sort of status quo continuing. Another scenario I see is states taking that next step and making interstate compacts, which Oregon has set the stage to do. There hasn't been a whole lot of progress there. But, you know, that, that's what I would hope would happen because it's still states driving the change and the feds could just kind of look the other way. I think it's less likely than it was two years ago for a number of reasons. I think you're getting entrenched siloed markets in these new states where they have less incentive to make interstate compacts with other states for various re- reasons. And then the third scenario is Congress actually passes legalization. And I think that is a long shot. You know, I could see a couple of fun scenarios to imagine, but it's I'm just shooting from the hip. You know, like I could see the Republicans getting it in their mind that like, oh my goodness, this is a wildly popular topic. 68% of Americans are in favor of cannabis legalization, including a majority of Republican voters. Wow, this is a slam dunk. It's extremely bipartisan, you know, on the public side. Let's bring our caucus together and own this. Let's, you know, the Democrats weren't able to do it. Let's do it as Republicans. And we're the heroes. I could see that. That's a long shot. It's a little bit of a fantasy, but I could see that happening. So I think the most likely scenario we see is just state by state, piece by piece, chip by chip, state led and inaction at the federal level for another decade. When I talk to people in the Oregon industry, there are three specific reforms that would help. And everybody has a slightly different answer on which they would want first. But the three things have generally been some sort of safe banking. The second is interstate commerce. And the third has been revoking of the 280E tax code. Which would you like to see first? (laughs) Uh, Okay, that's a really good list. And I'm all heavily in favor of all three. If I were to rank my priority for our industry, I'd say 
And this is more from an Oregon mindset, Oregon position, interstate first and foremost. This is an export state. It, this is where cannabis comes from. As Florida is to oranges, Oregon is to cannabis. And so interstate it will benefit Oregon greatly. Mason, thank you so much for your time today. Mason Walker, the CEO and co-owner of East Fork Cultivars. Mainstream media. If anyone would like to learn more about East Fork Cultivars, you can visit them online at eastforkcultivars.com. There you can read about their origins, their commitment to sustainability, and their philosophy of being good stewards. Thanks for listening to Mainstream Media on The Coin Podcast Network.